It's Tuesday, February 1st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Police departments across the country are dealing with resignations and retirements from their officers and struggling to replace them. Some officers describe the job as more stressful and less rewarding than in the past, amid increased scrutiny over police actions. Chris Marr, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how police departments are short-staffed and their efforts to recruit. Next, the fight over COVID misinformation continues on Spotify as Joe Rogan and the company have both responded after Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, and others demanded their music be taken off the platform for misinformation spread on Rogan's podcast. Spotify said they will be more transparent with its rules for what is allowed on the platform, as well as add content advisories to podcasts that talk about COVID. Travis Andrews, reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for more. Finally, ransomware hackers are increasingly adding a new tactic to get paid, contacting you directly. After the Allen Independent School District in Dallas was hacked, parents started getting emails threatening to release the sensitive information of their children unless they were paid off. Kevin Collier, cybersecurity reporter at NBC News, joins us for the evolving practices of ransomware gangs. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We just want the community to work with us and to not see us as the bad guys because we actually are the good guys. You know, we just hope that we can convey that better. Joining us now is Chris Marr, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about what we're seeing with police departments around the country. A lot of them are losing officers and then having a hard time replacing them. You know, there's a lot been going on. A lot of them, we've been talking about the great resignation, right? People leaving their jobs for other better things. But Police forces, you know, in the country also have been having a hard time, uh, especially after the death of George Floyd. You know, there's been a lot more scrutiny on police departments and what police departments are having to do in order to recruit more people is spend millions of dollars in either bonuses or, you know, ads in the paper trying to attract people. It's becoming a, a very serious issue when it comes to, you know, services that can be impacted also. So, Chris, help us walk through some of this. What are we seeing? Actually, a lot of the factors that you mentioned are playing a role. It's sort of difficult to sort out which, you know, how much each of them are playing into this. But the bottom line is that police departments across the country are reporting that they're having a tough time both finding enough officers to hire and then also, you know, they're having trouble holding on to their current staff. Many departments are reporting that officers are retiring early or they're resigning. And, you know, I'm sure that the pandemic has certainly played a role in making some of these jobs more stressful because you're having to interact with the public all the time. And a lot of things are changing around mask mandating and different things that officers have had to do. And also, as you mentioned, this is a time when the labor markets in the U.S. are going through a tremendous amount of flux. And there are record numbers of people quitting their jobs in recent months, even though there are more jobs available to people than there were prior to the start of the pandemic. So there are those opportunities out there where people can potentially, you know, leave a police department and take on some other career change or something. And because of the way the labor markets are right now, companies are actually offering higher pay and benefits. So it can make it attractive for for an officer who may be feeling more stressed or just not happy in their job to try something new. I think that's what one of the, uh, some of the officers said that the job is a lot more stressful and less rewarding than it has been in the past. Yeah. So it's become more stressful for the police officers themselves. Many of the ones that I talked to said that a lot of these media reports about the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis in 2020 
and even going back to Michael Ferguson in, or sorry, Michael Brown and uh, Ferguson in 2014, and, and many other cases that have been in the news, have really cast policing in, in such a negative light that uh, you know it's just stressful to be on a job and be a police officer because of the interactions they're having with people on the street, and also because of all the defund the police cuts and budgets to police departments that that happened. A lot of the officers said they just were not feeling supported by their superiors or by local elected officials, and that was also making the job just less attractive to stay on. Okay. To your point, right, there was a big call, defund the police. It didn't play out uh, as big. I guess there were areas where they did cut you know, some pay and, and, and for police and all that, but uh, other big cities, you know, New York, Los Angeles, increased their police funding. <laughs> you made mention in the article, Burlington, Vermont, I guess they voted to cut the police force, but then they, after that, they approved $10,000 bonuses to retain officers. So it's been a big back and forth with all that. Yeah, it's certainly been a pendulum swing back and forth, as you mentioned. And some of the police chiefs that I talked to and, and others said that they do think that things are changing, that the public perception is changing about police officers from their point of view. And then also that in, in terms of city budgets, yes, a lot of the cities, you mentioned New York, Los Angeles, Dallas, some others, very big cities, uh, and small ones as well, have been changing their policies around funding the departments. And after making cuts in 2020, they last year started putting in programs to recruit officers, often more incentive bonuses for people to hire on or, or to stay on police departments. And, you know, that I think is just going to play out over the next few years. Some of the chiefs that I talked to said that. You know, this problem has been happening for a number of years, and it really just became a crisis both after George Floyd and after the pandemic and also the way the labor markets are in flux right now. And they think it may take a decade or more to turn around, really. Tell me a little bit more about some of these recruitment efforts, because they are, you know, advertising in local papers, on billboards, things like that, trying to recruit officers even from other cities and other states where they feel, you know, maybe they're not getting as much support there. And they're saying, hey, come to our town. So this this is kind of the, the road they're taking. Yeah, in some cases, the departments are effectively trying to poach officers from other departments and other states. And I spoke to a sheriff at a department in Spokane, Washington, who spent $200,000 last year on recruitment efforts. And one of the things he was doing is paying for billboards in different cities and states where he thought that the police departments were not being as, as supported as he thought they should be by local officials. So he was, uh, he paid for billboards in cities like Seattle, Portland, Denver, and in Times Square in New York. And he said that from his perspective, it was highly effective because, you know, even though people didn't necessarily come from those cities, all the media attention that the, uh, that the advertising campaign generated did get him some recruits from different states. So he ended up hiring about 30 people. He got more than 700 applicants, which was pretty remarkable. He was only able to hire 30 because he said that for various reasons, people didn't qualify or they didn't meet the standards of the department. The other thing is that he still has all these job openings available. He's still got 50 job openings, so he's still understaffed. So it didn't solve the problem, although it did help. Chris Marr, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. I do not know if they're right. I don't know because I'm not a doctor. I'm not a scientist. I'm just a person who sits down and talks to people and has conversations with them. 
Do I get things wrong? Absolutely, I get things wrong, but I try to correct them. Whenever I get something wrong, I try to correct it because I'm interested in telling the truth. I'm interested in finding out what the truth is. Joining us now is Travis Andrews, reporter at the Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Travis. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Wanted to talk about what's going on with uh, Spotify, Joe Rogan, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell. You know, there's uh, Joe Rogan obviously has his $100 million podcast that he does with Spotify. And just recently, uh, Neil Young said, hey, it's either me or Joe Rogan. He was saying this in response to, I guess, some misinformation that was going on on Joe Rogan's podcast. He says, I want to take my music off the platform unless you guys respond and take uh, Joe Rogan off. Spotify chose its side. They chose Joe Rogan and they started removing his music. And after that, we started seeing other artists follow in Neil Young's footsteps. We saw uh, a delete Spotify, I guess, was trending for some time. People were just canceling the subscriptions. But now we've gotten responses from everywhere, everyone, and uh, it's just kind of this evolving situation and this constant struggle, right? Picking sides over COVID, fighting misinformation. Tell us a little bit more about it, Travis. First off, I think it's a story that I thought, and I think a lot of people thought, would be kind of a quick story that died down after a few days. So, exactly. like you said, on Monday of last week, Neil Young posted a letter saying that he wanted his music pulled off of Spotify unless Spotify removed Joe Rogan the popular podcaster who he's spread some misinformation about vaccines in a few different episodes. And like you said, Spotify chose Rogan seemingly very quickly. Two days later, they were pulling Neil Young's music off of the platform. Joni Mitchell joins in and yeah, it becomes this huge story that, that does kind of work as a microcosm for everything that's been going on uh, in America during the pandemic. Let's talk about the response from Spotify first, because they said they're going to publish kind of the rules that they have regarding all of this. They, they haven't been very transparent within the past. So they're going to publish their rules that, you know, shows what they how they respond to this stuff. And then they also said they're going to put some type of disclaimers or something on podcasts that do discuss COVID-19. Exactly. And then the, the third thing they said, which I thought was really interesting, is that they are going to make sure that the creators who are on Spotify know of those rules, which I thought was an interesting thing to include because it suggests that in the past, maybe even the people creating content on Spotify weren't entirely aware of what the rules were. Right. And that kind of leads us to Joe Rogan's response. You know, for a long time, he said, hey, I'm not a doctor. I just talk to people, try to have interesting conversations. Nobody comes to me for medical advice. And, And kind of in these rules that Spotify published, right, I guess that it kind of alludes to why he didn't receive a a bigger punishment or something like that. You know, it just basically says that he didn't go far enough, basically. Like he didn't flat out say the vaccine is going to make you die type of thing. So, you know, not going far enough really kind of protects him from some of that. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. The rules that they published are strikingly specific. Uh, Here's one, and I'm, I'm quoting. You cannot, uh, quote, uh, promoting or suggesting that vaccines approved by local health authorities are designed to cause death. Now, there's a lot there. Basically, you cannot say that the government made a vaccine to intentionally kill someone. But Joe Rogan has never said anything like that. It does not say that he couldn't say that they are dangerous, even though we know that they are not. And I thought that was really interesting just how specific those rules are. 
and that allows Rogan and, and anyone else to, to really probably pretty easily not break them while still spreading misinformation. And, and it should be noted, Spotify has removed over 40 episodes of his show, including one with conspiracy theorist Alex Jones on there. So, you know, they, they are willing to, to pull something when it crosses a line, but that line seems really difficult to cross in my reading of the rules. In his response, he posted something on Instagram. He said he's going to do his best to make sure he's researched the topics, uh, have on other voices, other opinions. You know, his overall goal was to kind of provide something that was different from the mainstream narrative. So you can tell, though, he was feeling the pressure. I mean, he did respond. He stands up for himself a lot, even in this video. But you can tell that he was feeling the pressure and Spotify themselves. I think they lost uh, some of their market value because of all of this. Yes, uh, $2 billion at least worth. Uh, and that's, again, that's where I come back to. I don't think Spotify thought this was a story that was going to continue on. I, I don't think most people did. And when, but when you look at the numbers, it's incredibly striking. Joe Rogan gets 11 million viewers per episode. He posts four to five episodes a week, and those generally run three to four hours. That's an awful lot of engagement time that people are spending on Spotify just listening to him. Neil Young, meanwhile, uh, had six million monthly listeners, and that could mean someone who you know listens to Heart of Gold one time in a month uh, could be one of those listeners. Right. So the, the numbers were really stacked, and I think that, not to speculate, but I think that Spotify thought this would blow over, and it did not. You mentioned earlier on that Delete Spotify started trending, and it seemed like people were really canceling their subscriptions in mass, which is unusual. I've spoken to several analysts who say that doesn't normally happen. It's a, it's a pain to get a new service. Uh, if you're on Spotify, you've got all your playlists, you've got all your music, and to switch over to something like Apple or Amazon means having to move that to start from scratch. People don't generally like to do that. They don't generally actually do that. So what we're seeing here is unique. Travis Andrews, reporter at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. It's very unnerving, I think, you know, to get this email from a hacker. Hey, you know, if, you, if your school district doesn't pay up, we're going to leak you and your kids information on the dark web. But that's the reality. That's that's where this stands right now. Joining us now is Kevin Collier, cybersecurity reporter at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Kevin. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, we've uh, touched base many times before about ransomware and uh, how hackers are you know, increasingly targeting Everybody, big businesses, uh, smaller outfits and uh, cities even. Right now, we want to talk about this new tactic where a lot of these hackers are calling you directly. So you have an example in your story where uh, somebody's school was hacked. And then later on, the hackers were contacting the parents of one of the students saying, hey, we have your information. We're going to leak it on the dark web if you don't uh, pay us money or at least convince the school to pay us money. So this is increasingly becoming a new tactic for them to put the pressure on the individuals. So hopefully the larger organization will pay up. Yeah. I mean, I, I think this is just the the latest wrinkle in what the kind of scary and uh, absurdity of what ransomware really is, which is organized cybercrime perpetually bombarding American um, organizations and individuals. The people I've spoken with who have been in kind of contact with with this tactic, you know, it's, it's, it's very unnerving, I think, you know, to get this email from a hacker, hey, we're, you know, if, you, if your school district doesn't pay up, we're going to leak you and your kids information on the dark web. But that's the reality. That's that's where this stands right now. 
Yeah, and you even uh, published a, an email threat that came to one of the uh, parents of a student who had been hacked. This was in uh, Dallas, I believe. And you can see the the kind of the broken English. Uh, you know, we've known for a lot of times that a lot of these ransomware hackers are coming from other countries. And uh, you know, you know, it says we hold control on the network several months, so we had a ton of time to carefully study, exfiltrate the data, and prepare attack. And you know, they're they're telling him, hey, give us your info. We're going to release your child's info on the dark web. Sometimes these hackers tend to overestimate or, or you know, kind of uh, oversell their abilities and, and what they've done. In this case, the school district declined to say whether or not they paid the hackers. But, I mean, I can confirm this, the district's information did end up on the dark web, so it appears that they did not. The, the possible good news is that confirmed cases where a kid's information being leaked on the dark web, which does happen with horrifying frequency, it, it doesn't seem like it, it, it frequently leads to outright identity theft, but it's yeah. still extremely unnerving, I think. What have we seen from the Biden administration with regards to ransomware? Because when we saw the big hacks of like the oil pipeline and all that, you know, they sprung into action pretty quickly to to at least reassure people that things were being done. What have we been seeing from them, at least on on these smaller scales like this? I think there's two almost completely uh, opposing ways to <laughs> to look at the White House's response to ransomware over the over the past year. On one hand, they have done, I would say, the majority of of things that experts tend to suggest to counter this, which is they've conducted cyber attacks against some of the worst gangs. They've put a lot of international pressure on countries to arrest their hackers. In some countries like Ukraine, it's easier than with others like Russia, though Russia did finally arrest a handful of members of one of the gangs uh, the other week. Uh, They sanction some of the cryptocurrency exchanges that are the lifeblood of how these hackers launder their ill-gotten gains. But at the same time, I mean, this is the ransomware ecosystem is very complicated. It involves lots of moving parts, lots of different people across lots of countries. Law enforcement is extremely sluggish, just kind of by definition in keeping up with it. It's it's a new tactic. The, the tools that we have aren't that sophisticated. And ransomware is maybe a little quieter in recent weeks than it has been in the past three years on average, but it by no means has gone away. It's still a, a very active problem that doesn't really have, right. I mean, I hate to phrase it this way, but doesn't really have a clear solution. You heard from a parent, his name was Wayne, where his school district had gotten uh, hacked. This was the Allen Independent School District in Dallas, uh, in the Dallas suburbs. How did that play out? Because he was obviously furious at what was happening, but he, he had very little communication from the school. In the end, they provided free credit monitoring service for them, but Throughout the process, he was he was left to hear it from the hackers first, then from the school. He was really upset that the school district didn't tell him that it kept under its hat. And I do think that is also kind of a, a major problem that we, we've been dealing with with ransomware, that even if an organization that's holding your information gets hacked, we don't have very strong data privacy notification laws in this country. It, it varies a lot by state, and only a few states have, have robust ones or even kind of moderately robust ones. So, you know, he was upset that he had to hear about it from the hackers and the school district hadn't told him. And, you know, you want to know as soon as possible if right. information has been compromised that you can you can take whatever steps you can to secure your most important. Kevin Collier, cybersecurity reporter at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. Take care. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, 
Give us a rating and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Diver is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.